0: Keywords in Play.
1: You are listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome back to Keywords in Play. This episode, I'm talking to Everest Pipkin, who is a writer, game developer, and software artist from Central Texas, whose work follows themes of ecology, information theory, and system collapse. They hold a BFA from University of Texas at Austin, an MFA from Carnegie Mellon University, and live and work in Southern New Mexico. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the technological infrastructure and digital tools that determine much of the contemporary experience of the internet and gaming. So to start, could you give some examples of how your recent
0: projects use
1: digital space and games to get at the broader themes of your work?
0: Hi, um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really a, a pleasure to be here. I, I think as an intro, I'll just talk through uh, a couple of recent projects and then we can sort of move from those to, you know the tools and technologies that underpin them. But I, I thought maybe something that would be useful to start with would be this series of what I've been internally calling to myself, um, these HTML poems. That includes uh, Anonymous Animal, Soft Corruptor, and Gift Game. Um, Gift Game came out in 2020, Soft Corruptor came out in 2021, and Anonymous Animal came out uh, this spring. And all three of them sort of use aspects of HTML as a programming language, but also as an engine for connectivity and sort of the early web to provide these experiences that are poem-like, that are durational, and that uh, utilize kind of you know particular HTML tags in ways that are both intended and antithetical to their use. Anonymous animal, the, the most recent of those uh, HTML poems, is a kind of collective browsing experience for that is synced up on a timer. And so, when you go to um, anonymousanimal.neocities.org, um, you are hit with this kind of iframe um, that's waiting in space until the start of the hour, at which point it takes you on this collective walk, um, slightly collaborative experience with everyone else who happens to be on that website at the same time, um, which is both, you know, ex- examining and pushing against this kind of designed emptiness of digital space, bringing you on kind of a, a collective tour together um, through the internet, although anonymized through you know the distance of, of screens. Gift game, which is where those kind of series of, of HTML films started, is. Um, <laughs> a manifesto in, in certain ways, um, something that I know you're you, you are familiar with, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sort of talks directly about potential Internets, about Internets that are made of gifts, um, Internets that are kind of held in circulation, held in circulations of hands, alternative Internets, um, Internets that are, are made by the making and giving of things to other people. Um. It's, you know, a little tiny piece of like speculative hyperfiction, Um, but all within it are embedded uh, iframes and pieces of media from other sites. And it kind of uses the iframe as well. You know, Anonymous Animal and Soft Carpenter do this too. They use the technology of the iframe as a a way to kind of like grasp at or get a little bit of information from somewhere else on the internet embedded inside of this kind of artwork that has other discursive elements, which is not a rare way to use iframes. It was how iframes are designed. However, <laughs> iframes are such a particular security risk um, as well as you know, tied into this history of like hot linking images and you know, well, well what about, you know, bandwidth and kind of all of these worries of the late 90s, early 2000s internet right after kind of the launch into uh, mainstream, that they have been, um, it's much more difficult to kind of load information from other websites um, through your own website that that sort of era of, you know, hotlinking of um, everything from everywhere of like hosting information on a variety of servers has really ended and all three of these pieces kind of push back at that, both as a way to think about like what the internet was, but also what the internet could be like an internet that was not so tied up into commerce and bandwidth and um, security and all of the <laughs> ways in which the internet has sort of moved over, you know, the past 20 or 30 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess guess what I really like about how in those works, you know, they always seem to be grabbing, you know, these things from these different websites and having them as like all the separate iframes within the page and those sorts of things. Like you said, it kind of makes me think about like, you know, my kind of first foray um, in my early teens into hosting websites and just getting, like, a bunch of, like, various free hosting accounts across, like, all of the main providers at the time. And, you know, they, they only give you, like, 10 megabytes or 25 megabytes. So if I run out of space on one, I just kind of start, like, linking it to everything in the other one. And it's just, like, this huge, you know, daisy chain of websites. And, of course, as soon as one of those went down, like, you know, the whole, the whole thing kind of stopped working. <laughs> um, but you know obviously there is kind of like much greater or like near infinite space on like a social media account now but what you can do with it is much more restricted
0: yeah yeah absolutely and I mean I'm not really advocating like a return to early internet nor even a nostalgia right there were troubles with that space um across practically every vector, Uh, cost of access, uh, its visions of what a default user was, um, all of it, you know? Uh, But there (laughs) is an ideology built into HTML and the way that HTML was written, this kind of like bizarre, bizarre hypertext markup language that didn't really differentiate between, you know, where something was hosted, um, you know how it was hosted. Who, like there weren't major security protocols in early HTML, and all of that kind of points at these different set of concerns about the internet than the ones we ended up with. And you know, I'm not necessarily saying that those sets of concerns or that vision of what the internet could be or was was um, necessarily better <laughs> in every vector. I think if we'd watched that full trajectory play out. Um, we probably would have ended up in spaces with very different problems, but problems nonetheless. All that said though, looking at that kind of early HTML spec, you, you do see a kind of vision of this, um, non-commercial internet, right? Like an internet that is kind of treated more like a public utility or a publishing platform. A lot of the metaphors that people were using for kind of the early, early HTML in particular, you know, was one of like, a yeah, like a newspaper markdown language, but, um, you know, kind of published from anywhere, treated more like a phone system, more like a phone line, um, and reading some of, you know, again, the manifestos of early internet, which are not without their troubles. Um, I think, you know, you you look at kind of uh, the web medicine manifestos of the early 90s, and you see um, so much in wealth and whiteness and kind of assumption of ability that has been unpacked certainly in the internet of the 2020s, but you also see um, a space that doesn't understand or that wasn't even allowed to be commercial yet, right? Like a space that didn't have commerce on it whatsoever. Um, and the way that that impacted things like media sharing, things like hosting, and ideas of ownership of media, um, which has kind of followed this completely different trajectory um, than than early HTML was designed to support.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find that really interesting um, just from the perspective of how it seems that the early HTML stuff was almost like too trusting as a technology like you said it kind of had its own issues it couldn't really imagine you know how it could be used in a commercial sense or you know how there could potentially be like any security issues associated with the internet which is obviously so far from you know our experience of using computers and stuff now but yeah I think you know even though it does have its obvious like limitations in like both the perspective and the technology itself that is what you know, I find really interesting about it and how it can kind of make you reconsider, um, you know, your relationship to these different things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that trust piece is really important because <laughs> it certainly underpins uh, all three of those projects that I brought up at the top. Um, this idea of like, <laughs> whether by accident or not, um, people are trusting me to sort of incorporate, you know, aspects of other sites, whether in pop-ups or iframes or, um, you know, little, like, embeddable pieces of media. I think those ideas of, of trust are really important um, to, to sort of the early web for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of them is that kind of, like, <laughs> you know, trustfulness of, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to embed an iframe, a, a piece of media. Um, you know, what, whatever that is, into like a separate website. And I think it also ties into kind of the ways in which the internet has really moved over the last 15 or 20 years, um, which has been pretty, pretty directly away from trustfulness, so, you know, to the extent that trustlessness has become a selling point of like contemporary economic transactions. It's like, ah, yes, you know, if we have like everything on the ledger, like everything can be trustless. Which is a side effect of a system that that doesn't prioritize trust, that doesn't have other mechanisms for trust, um, through which people are like, you know, distanced from each other enough so that uh, tr- trust isn't kind of like, that there I- is no um, necessarily like so- society of, of trust <laughs> uh, it, through a lot of contemporary internet, which is not true, of course, um, in, you know, small, small social groups still build trust with each other. Um, There are lots of like mechanisms for trust, both, you know, through like, protocols, as well as through the more standard ways in which people build trust and care for one another. But in general, the, the system of the internet has moved from a very trusting space to one where you are intentionally supposed to trust no one. And, you know, a lot of that is not so much tied to the inbuilt technology as it is tied to like living in a society where people are not taken care of, right? So there is like general need, Um, but is something that I think we see reflected um, in our tools and technology in general.
1: You can definitely see how, you know, you make this tool that doesn't require trust. So, you know, or I guess this, this tool that alternately it requires trust actually, like like HTML where it doesn't really like say like, oh wait, maybe you shouldn't do this when it can, you know, just pull something from a completely different, you know, server or web page onto this one. That's kind of a specific type of tool that really structures the experience versus, you know, one that has like a bunch of layers of security to the point where You know, you don't really have to have, you know, any context or relation to what you're looking at. You know, you don't have to, like, evaluate, like, is this a good thing? Do I actually want to look at this? Right. So, yeah, I guess looking at these tools, you kind of draw on the work of Ursula Franklin, who kind of has these two contrasts that she uses when discussing tools. One is like work versus control and the other is prescriptive versus holistic.
0: So Ursula Franklin, for those who aren't familiar, is a metallurgist and professor or was a metallurgist and engineering professor who was working in the 50s or 60s until the 90s or early 2000s. Um, And she has these series of lectures from 1989 called The Real World of Technology, which are fascinating. They're up on archive.org. Uh, I return to them periodically because they offer this kind of alternate worldview, alternate lens and vocabulary through which to talk about tools and technology that have pretty much have not been widely adopted. Um, the the ways in which people even you know media theorists do sort of talk about tools and technology doesn't tend to be through these terms although she's got her fans um me included Uh, but she lays out i think as this kind of discursive sphere these few ideas Um, one of them is work related versus control related technologies And then the related but not identical ideas of kind of holistic versus prescriptive technologies. So to Franklin, a work-related technology is essentially something that makes work easier to do. So, you know, a shovel for digging a hole makes digging the hole simpler than using your hands, you know? A typewriter for taking notes goes faster than you know, using a pen and paper, usually, <laughs> or it has other advantages, you know, like it's easier to read, although that might move it into control-related technologies, which we'll talk about in a second. A knife for cutting vegetables, a pan for cooking things, right? These are all work-related technologies because you're doing work, you're doing labor, and the tool that you're using, the technology that you're using is helping you to do that labor. Whereas a control-related technology to Franklin um, makes work easier to control. So this is stuff like, I mean, the typewriter goes, and most technologies go both ways, actually, but the typewriter goes both ways, right? A typewriter is probably, it's easier to write all day long on a typewriter, you know? If you are taking notes or writing a novel, it is probably easier on your hands to sit there and type. It probably goes a little faster. It probably allows you to look over that work um with a little bit more focus in the future. However, you could also hand those typewritten sheets off to someone who can't read your handwriting, and then they can uh, both help you with that work, help you do work, as well as control your work, right? Like you could hand them to a manager who then can read them and be like, ah, you you know, didn't do X and Y right. Um, so a control-related technology in general is things like um, yeah the word counter the thermometer um taxes managers right and to franklin she doesn't always like draw the line between um she in fact she never draws the line between a tool like a thing i hold in my hand um like a pencil and a technology you know that that is society-wide you know that is um things like political organizations or religions um she talks about technologies of prayer you know that there are lots of ways in which you can feel connected to um broader things than yourself in the world right through like singing you know or going on walks in the forest but religious prayer has a really particular technological bent and that you are often using a technology when you're engaged in like histories of religious prayer. So for her, the lines between um, tool, society, technology, um, very broad sort of trajectories of human culture are limited if they're at all. Then she has these other set of ideas that again are related to work related and control related technologies, but not identical, which sort of, we'll get into. Um, but uh, these are holistic or prescriptive technologies. So uh, a holistic technology is usually craft-related, you know, that, or at least that's the lens and through which we tend to view what she defines as a holistic technology. So uh, a holistic technology is, be, is present in time. And so what this usually means is... Um, a practitioner generally a craft practitioner but really any type of worker who has a like one to one relationship with the thing they're making has control over that thing from start to finish so her example is like a potter you know sitting at a wheel who's like building a cup from a lump of clay is in conversation with the thing in time So they're making situational decisions about like, how tall do I want this cup to be? You know, how thin do I want the walls to be? What temperature am I going to fire it? You know, how close to the other things in the kiln am I going to put this cup, et cetera, et cetera. Like what color am I going to glaze it? And all of those are things that are happening in time, even if you have a plan ahead of time, right? Even if you're like, I'm gonna make this cup and it's gonna be green and it's gonna be this big, you know, you might like get it on the wheel and you'll be like, oh, no, not today. (laughs) This is gonna be a flat cup, turns out, you know? And that there is difference from cup to cup, even if you're sort of like following a pattern in your own mind, which is different than a um, prescriptive technology. So a prescriptive technology is essentially work based on the division of labor. So a prescriptive technology is one that's, you know, again, to us in this society, the idea would be, is tied to factory work, right? The um, idea of the kind of industrial revolution, um, the factory line, but is also super present throughout history. It didn't come from the industrial revolution. The main defining feature of prescriptive technologies is that the doing of them is broken down into a series of steps, and each step is carried out by a separate worker or group of workers who are only familiar with or only need to be familiar with that the skills of performing that one step, which then sort of compound into a cup. So, you know, you can make pottery through a prescriptive lens and the way you would do that would be, all right, we've got 45 people in this workshop and two of them are on lids and two of them are on glazing and five of them are on the kiln and some of them are you know and so what you have are these series of steps that even though each of those laborers is in some ways in a holistic relationship maybe with the thing they are making whether that be like dipping pots in clay or whatever it is, they don't understand or don't need to understand, even if they do individually, the process from start to finish. Um, and their labor has been divided. And the other key defining factor of the prescriptive technology is that you tend to have a boss. It tends to invent the manager, you know, or the distributor, or, you know, it, the more distance you have from the labor, you more distance you have from the result of that labor too, as well as the management of it. All of those things are not necessarily separate technologies. Like I said, you can sort of view something as simple as the construction of a cup through any of those lenses, in fact, Um, you know, but you can generally point to a piece of technology or at least a piece of technology's current use and be like, okay, that's being used in a work-related prescriptive way or in a control-related way or in a holistic way or whatever it is. There's not that many kind of worldviews that are different than the one that is kind of contemporarily used that sits so fully uh, on top of sort of really broad systems of technology you know technology not taken as like a tool held in the hand or an extension of the body right but like technology is something that's like deeply embedded inside of and gives rise to human culture like through and through um i, I find them really really useful when thinking about um the you know movements of capital and and empire and you know like as well as you know small things like um how i got my kitchen knives and the way that's related to movements of capital and empire you know because we live in this like deeply deeply connected um technological system and have forever but only increasingly so in the last you know even since she's been writing in 1989 that all of this has come to bear so fully on the communications technologies, which have uh, fully enmeshed to the world, which she saw coming certainly in 1989, right? It wasn't like that it was pre-internet, um, but it was pre-World Wide Web, you know? It was pre-what we talk of when we talk about like, oh yeah, early internet.
1: I feel like a thread that's going through all those different categories and kind of the, the issues that they make you consider is this kind of sense of balancing both like effort and standardization with like the earlier stuff that we were talking about with like, you know, the very, very basic HTML. And you were saying earlier how that kind of ties into, you know, kind of the privilege of resources and knowledge and spare time that a lot of the people who were involved in that, you know, they they were kind of like, you know, oh, well, you know, this technology is like so easy and utopian to me, right? (laughs) Without really a sense of, you know, that they had the opportunity to like learn so much of it. So yeah, I guess I guess now, you know, as the internet has kind of become this much larger and more commercialized thing, I guess you know, the the thing that's kind of come along with like the scale is that in certain ways more people do use it. So in like in a raw sense you can kind of say like obviously it's complicated, you know, what really accessibility means but in some ways that is kind of more accessible than having to actually like write the code of a page for it to exist but at the same time more and more things kind of being presented to us and more and more aspects of our life kind of being mediated by you know these kind of algorithm driven apps or centralized like commercial web platforms is really kind of an increasingly hot topic that people seem you know I don't know, I guess kind of more and more dissatisfied with, especially, you know, kind of, you know, after so many, you know, kind of high-profile failings on the part of the big ones like Facebook and Twitter
0: and so on. Sure. I'm looking for this um, article from 1996 about... Yeah, here it is. Jennifer S. Light, uh, Developing the Ritual Landscape, which talks about um sort of the fantasy of commercial internet as a public forum relating directly to the fantasy of malls as main streets right sort of talking about um the ways in which you know the kind of 80s and 90s vision of the mall was this like well we can construct this Safe, monitored um, <laughs> mall cops, uh, simulacrum of the town square where where commerce is kind of the, the main you know central space, and even in ninety six, uh, Jennifer S. Light was um, you know a- already breaking down the the ways in in which ah, there's some killer quote in here. Let me see if I can find it. Yes. The private ownership of online services means that these agora function only in their commercial sense. The sense of the market space as site for civic life is subject to strict controls. Um, For example, the Prodigy Network, which didn't last, um, but which was billed as a family network, is an exemplary analog to the suburban shopping mall. Just as the mall, because of its enclosed, surveilled nature, has become a place where parents feel safe leaving their children, the electronic panopticon of the monitored Prodigy Network appeals to many parents because they feel their children are somehow safer there. Currently on Prodigy, all public postings are monitored. I, I think about this it's really brief. It's like a little, I don't know, four page editorial and some magazine or kind of like academic journal. But I think about, you know, the, the ways in which from the beginning, um, sort of that, that shift into centralized web platforms, into monitored web spaces um, is like tied into surveillance and control, you know both in the control related technologies Ursula Franklin sense as well as the kind of just more um, I mean not that her definition isn't also immediate but the more immediate sense of like ah yes and your data is being gathered and sold to the eyes is better ah yes like we will you know send you advertisements particularly tailored to you and the the, the ways in which you know that is very much tied into the contemporary internet and frankly held up kind of through the practice of in some ways um artists game makers uh aesthetes right content creators um because as we all know um, the internet and the companies that sort of like (laughs) connect us to one another are really in the business of connection and surveillance more than they are in the business of um, making much of anything at all. So much like them all, um, I believe profoundly that individuals will make meaningful connections and community, no matter what hellscape they are placed inside of. Right. That is the one of the greatest aspects of the human condition is that like people make and find meaning. And I don't mean, you know, like, hollow meaning, like, true, real connection and meaning with others, um, no matter what they're asked to live through, which doesn't mean this world couldn't be better, right? So when you look at, you know, things like the suburban mall as a, um, like, important cultural signifier or place for... Um, teenagers in the late 90s or early 2000s and the ways in which like people really did use that site as the location for friendships for growth um, for uh, meaningful connections to others for um, you know, first forays into employment for finding a mentor in your first foray into employment. I don't want to be like, ah, oh, yes, all of mall space is bad, even though mall space is hyper corporate, hyper controlled, ultimately surveilled, um, keeps individuals out of that space, unlike the public sphere, unlike the main street, is this fantasy world. Um, and, you know, all of those things have led ultimately to a lot of, you know, malls failure, Um, there are still individuals who have deeply real lives and important lives lived through them. And that is also true of the internet, right? Um, That is also true of the sort of, like, centralized web platforms that connect people to one another through... almost, I mean, I don't know, actually, I won't say that. I think a a lot of them do intend on connection and much, without much else, without um, adequate safety tools, (laughs) without, um, you know, all of the other aspects, without sort of being open and available to lots of people who maybe don't necessarily have, like, internet access in their home, you know? Um, So despite this, I do think people manage to make meaningful lives and connections with others through those spaces. Um, That said, (laughs) all of them come with cost, right? All of them come with human cost, whether that is taken out in the social sphere, right? On through like what living your social life through a platform that doesn't have adequate safety tools does to a person right like um or you know distanced communication the ways in which kind of low bandwidth communication can change the way that people interact with each other or whether that is just like the more obvious and simple like yeah you know you are the product right (laughs) of contemporary internet society it's like a cliche but it's also true um that like yes you know um if you are making material and posting it online through a bid to communicate with or find others then that benefits whatever place you put it um and you know your movements through online space much like your movements through a mall are deeply tracked you know your purchasing habits are deeply tracked um the things you uh look at at four in the morning when you can't sleep um, depending on your privacy settings and your uh, propensity to use a vpn probably do end up um, in a log somewhere you know that gets aggregated into so much other data and sold off wholesale so every tool has an ideology right even tools that are so big or technological systems that are so big that we can't see outside of them Um, And to go back to Franklin, right, this is like one of the hallmarks of the control-related technology is to make a thing so standardized, so inbuilt, so a part of culture and society that you can't really see outside of the edges, that that's just like the way that things work. You know, she brings up taxes as like a very standard, um, like a pretty solid example. I personally believe in taxes. I, like, believe that, you know, like, we should all pay taxes and have, like, a society that actually respects our wants and wishes, like, as individuals and, you know, distributes those taxes. That's besides the point. Um, Anyway, (laughs) not. and I think Franklin, although she does take some moral stance here, It's not always like work-related good, control-related bad, you know, holistic good, prescriptive bad. Um, You know, she studies in particular like ancient bronze casting, which is maybe how she got on this whole point. And she she very much identifies that as a prescriptive technology, you know, one that creates division of labor because there's so it takes so many people to like cast bronze, large bronze. Um, But I'm not sure that she would ever be like, ah, and they're bad and shouldn't exist. Although maybe she would, I wouldn't put words in her mouth. Anyway, um, taxes are a really good example of a control related technology that is so standardized, at least in the place that I live, that even the people who don't pay taxes feel like they probably should be paying taxes, right? It is like inbuilt into the way that the world works. Property ownership is maybe a clearer one where, where you can look at that and be like, that's not n- normal. There's no reason that that is the way it is. There's no reason that ideas should exist, but it's so built into society that it's like hard to unpack that that is a system of kind of like technological control. So, anyway, every tool, every technology has an ideology. Um, this is true of things as big as ideas of property ownership. This is, you know, and I should say that it's so built into my society, right? Not built into every society, property ownership in particular, but this is also true of everything. This is also true of small stuff like word processors, right? <laughs> Which feel like pretty standard right now. It's like, oh, yes, word processor is a word processor, and this is the way things work. But they have their own ideology, right? Like they, they, they are saying something about the way the world is and the way that they want the world to be right? Um, Their understanding of like what the world is. And then they kind of push that onto the world through their use, onto their users through their use. And so when I think about uh, tools, when I think about sort of like other tools and technologies that i could be using a lot of the math i'm doing right now um that i think i failed to do at certain points in my practice is like okay what is the world that this tool is trying to build you know what is the ideology that this thing is carrying with it and through its use, and I kind of farthering that ideology in the world? And it's very hard to use a tool or a technology not farther its ideology in the world, even if you don't have a choice, right? Um, sometimes you end up in positions where, yeah, you simply have to pay your taxes or like, you know, paying v- rent is um, j- just the way you are going to live as a human being, even if rent is a fake idea, you know? Um, and so I don't want to like shame anyone for being caught up inside of um, tools or technologies with ideologies that they don't necessarily agree with. Um, But I would say historically, I've not necessarily brought this framework to every project I've ever made, which is part of why I historically made things, you know talking about the discursive problems with AI and data gathering, but like using AI and data gathering, which is a loser's game, right? Like (laughs) there is no way to uh, address the kind of like fundamental issues of like big data sets while using big data sets in your work. It doesn't function. Um, best way to move through the world is to look at tools or ideolo- or technologies that have ideologies that are as far distanced from the thing <laughs> you would like that are actively building a world that is not that world, right? And so the, the things that I am interested in right now that I'm trying to work on right now um, are certainly, you know, handmade tools, weird tools, um, weird web tools, uh, kind of like I'm working on this this tool called ScrubJ at the moment, which has been in progress for a couple years, and it's a, a real, you know, nights and weekends, once a month type of project for me, but it'll be out someday, which is like a drag and drop kind of bookmarking tool and website builder, very much constructed on sort of that idea of hot linking everything at all times. Um, and makes these very chaotic kind of playful websites as well as kind of sites where everything came from as you're building it. So as you're kind of dragging and dropping little pieces of information from the wider web onto this website, constructing a website via the drag and drop interface, um, you're also kind of citing everything. So you can go back through this construction and be like, oh, this is from that Wikipedia page. Like when I was researching radar or whatever it is. Um, I also maintain a tools directory so if you're interested in um, tools that have ideologies, usually handmade by one person, um, tinytools.directory would be the, the spot to go. Um, it's got over a thousand tools on it and now, um, and they're all sorted by things like... Uh, let me open it up so I can actually (laughs) tell you some of the tags um yeah so you can go through and you can be like i want you know there's probably 20 tags you can be like i want an experimental tiny game engine that runs in the browser and it'll be like oh do you want bitsy do you want flick game do you want flixy do you want idle game maker do you want cool tool do you want tiny choice um and you know so you can kind of sort through all of all of these tools by what you're looking for um and then Uh, And most, almost all of those are kind of artful toys and tools that are as fun to use as they are functional, right, that have sort of an ideology of play uh, as as their basis. I also maintain um, this uh, project called Screenshot Garden, which um, mirrors a folder of screenshots on your desktop onto a website so you can sort of have this history of making through screenshots. Um, as well as the anti-capital software license, which I made with RMC Nasser, which is a sort of alternate take on software licenses and the ways in which software licenses can kind of, um, change the distribution or use of work license under them, uh, and protest tools. Um, things like image scrubber which is expressly used to kind of anonymize images taken at protests. And yeah, all of these are very active tools, right? Like all of these are things that say something about the, the, the world in which they want to be used or to be used towards. Um, and I, it's been very useful for me when sitting down to make a project, to look through my toolkit, (laughs) my toolbox and be like, ah, okay. Yeah, no, the, these are the tools that wear what they want on their surface and the thing that they want. Um, or that their creators want wanted are not antithetical to the world in which I want to live.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the idea of looking at the different categories that these tools, you know, can kind of fit into or oscillate between based on the scenario is like a really interesting angle on that. So yeah, I guess just to wrap up, um, do you have any kind of upcoming projects or publications um, or anything like that that you'd like to shout out or, you know, say say when they'll be available?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a little unrelated to this conversation, although both of them certainly thoughtful in uh, their use case. Uh, I have a tabletop game coming out in September that's open for pre-orders right now, so if you uh, it So if this sounds interesting, please go, go find it. Um, it's called World Ending Game. Um, it is written to serve as the last session of a campaign in any system. Um, so sort of, yeah, it's It's a falling action game, right, For towards closure. So if you are somebody who plays tabletop games, who have a campaign that is going to be ending, um, and you're not sure how exactly to end it, this might be the game for you. Um, And I also have a shortly to be announced um, idle game for the browser, which will be out in the fall. Uh, And I say that, you know, both of these are not exactly related to this conversation. Although both of them are, you know, very expressly using kind of either (laughs) low-tech or no-tech, right, like paper um, or really basic sort of HTML and JavaScript uh, browser-based games to kind of think through alternate ways of storytelling and meaning-making. And then if you liked this conversation, um, I have an essay about tools and technology that digs a little bit deeper into all of the stuff Franklin included, which will be out um, with Pioneer Works for the next edition of their Software for Artists series, um, which will be out in late October. Uh, Yeah, I think that's it. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
1: It was nice talking to you.
0: Yeah, it was uh, really nice to, to get to chat.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the DIGRA archives at
0: digra.com.